2: Hello. This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Thank you for all of you who downloaded uh, yesterday's. The biggest day we've ever had on the podcast. I don't know what it was about yesterday's podcast it uh, proved so interesting to everyone but anyway it's lovely for that if you wanted to tell your friends all better still go online and uh, post a review on your Apple podcast it helps with the mumbo jumbo charts apparently uh, or if you just want to get in touch let us know about the podcast you can email me matt.jolly at times.radio right a complete change of tone on the podcast today for our big thing today uh, we've caught up with Claire Fisher she was on the show uh, last year she would messaged me to say she uh, used to listen while she was having chemotherapy she former civil servant, uh, started a campaign called Dying Well to try and improve end-of-life care. Well, Claire is now in a hospice but I caught up with her uh, on Zoom this week. and A really um, moving but thoughtful interview with her coming up on the podcast today for a complete change of tack. Before that, though, it's our columnist panel uh, where we will talk about Boris Johnson, of course. It's normally on a Thursday night at the Marriott, but no James Marriott this week because he's off uh, cramming for his mocks. Uh, so instead, uh, this week is with India Nut and Hugo Rifkin. Go on then. Who wants to start? Uh, Boris Johnson? Can he survive? India?
0: It's a good question. I'm not entirely sure, actually, of the answer. Um, interestingly, yesterday I <laughs> had uh, I had a, con- I had a um, parcel delivered, and the DPD um, delivery man wanted to talk about it. Then in the co-op, the cashier wanted to talk about it, and then out on a dog walk, another random man wanted to talk about it. And I think, you know, when you when it when it is um clear that people who aren't kind of political nerds are really, really livid about something, then the something is very serious. So I'm not sure he can. I think certainly if anything else were to come out, that would be curtains. I think people's... Uh, well, curtains, uh, to-
2: the curtains have already come out. We know all about the curtains well, the, <laughs> and who paid <played> for them.
0: <laughs> the curtains have come out. I don't know. It's, I think he's in a really precarious
2: situation position hugo it's a good test is isn't it but my view if if politics drips into uh, non-political whatsapp groups that i'm in uh with people who aren't normally remotely interested in my job when they start asking what's going to happen then is he going to go uh that's when it's you know you know that this story has got proper cut through
3: yeah look i mean i should matt i should start by apologizing because i know this is a work event we're having at ten thirty in the morning but i'm afraid <laughs> I, I thought it was going to be a party so i'm absolutely hammered on gin and i hope that's not going to be a problem um uh look <laughs> The question of whether Boris Johnson is going to go—if Boris Johnson was the sort of man who resigned because he'd been sort of revealed to be humiliatingly terrible at his job—I don't think he'd be there, nor would he have been foreign secretary, nor would he have done any of the many, many jobs he's done in his life. So I think sort of waiting for him, the penny to finally drop with him—I think is a is a sort of fool's errand. It's all about whether the Conservative Party will put up with him or not, and um and they don't seem they don't seem wildly over inclined to sort of wield the knife at the moment either. So I I don't know. I sort of think it seems it seems sort of like inconceivable that he could still be there in 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 a month and yet it also seems inconceivable that
2: anyone's going to do anything about it yeah the all eyes do seem to be on uh, rishi sunak uh it has to be said with the by disappearing to ilfracombe yesterday and then late last night issuing the lamest endorsements <laughs> of uh of the boss i think i've ever seen but Matt, so
3: my Rishi Sunak issue is in Rishi Sunak, you know, everyone's like, oh, he's, you know, he, he, he's the he's the clean slate who can sweep in. Rishi Sunak lives in number 10 Downing Street. Yes. Um, and so did he never look out the window? You know, I mean, it's like he, he if there were all these parties going on, if anyone in the world knew about them, it's surely Rishi Sunak. He lives
2: right there, you know. Unless he's uh, just I mean, sitting there, you know, with his hoodie on and his big Beats headphones, <laughs> looking at photos of himself on Instagram. Maybe that's how he missed it.
0: Well, it's, maybe it he's just sitting there furious, you know, writing cross notes to people. I don't, it's, it's, it's a good point. He can't have it's, been entirely oblivious. Maybe
3: he's one of these people who sort of sends out anonymous tweets going, my neighbours are having a party again. You yeah, know. I, I
0: suppose
2: what was he supposed to do? Go down the stage of, like a citizen's arrest? Yes.
0: You gonna shout at them in the traditional manner, you know, lean out of the window and go, oh, you're making too much noise in any way, it's not allowed.
2: It would have been quite, yes. Yeah, throw a bucket of water over, over yeah. Boris Johnson. It would have been quite a thing if it emerged in May 2020 that uh, Rishi Sunak had broken up a party that Boris Johnson was having next door. <laughs> you know, with sort of slightly shaky mobile phone footage of uh, shouting over the over the garden fence, but his his message yesterday was: "It said I've been I've been on a visit all day, continuing to work on our hashtag plan for jobs, a hashtag no normal person ever used, as well as meeting MPs to discuss the energy situation." The PM was right to apologise, and I support his request for patience while Sue Gray carries out her inquiry. I mean, yes, he should apologise, and let's just wait and see how completely screwed he is when Sue Gray's uh, report comes out. Um, but do you think India that he's got the killer instinct, Rishi Sunak? No, I don't at all. That's interesting. Yeah, mm. is he just a bit too nice?
0: He's too nice. He's too shiny. He's too um, rich. He's too. He's too slick. No, I don't think so.
2: Oh, Hugo. I don't know.
0: Uh, I mean,
3: his 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 suit's always alarm me. He always looks like he's wearing an all-in-one bodysuit with a suit painted onto it for reasons I've never. Been to <laughs> uh, it, just, it just does. You know what I mean? Like it's a t-shirt with a tie, it's kind of sort of drawn on. Uh, um, he he doesn't. He has a certain kind of sort of milibandesque weediness about him that I think you know people might kind of become more and more aware of the more the more we see of him. Uh, I mean, he obviously, you know, he, I mean, he, he, he'd obviously go for it. He obviously thinks he can do it. I'm not sure he'd necessarily be be, be the best at the job, no.
2: It's interesting, um, George Grills on The Times uh, tweeted this morning, I think, saying that um, uh, people have pointed out, one Tory MP noted the second time in a matter of months he's been missing in action because Richard Grylls didn't turn up for the Owen Paterson vote either uh and this mp said when the you know what hits the fan rishi runs away and so for every person who's like impressed by his wily skills someone else is annoyed that you know they're the ones who have to turn up and do the dirty work while he you know goes to <laughs> goes to north devon for for reasons mm-hmm. which weren't totally explained what about liz trust then
0: um also no for me i'm i'm completely as i think i've said before on your show, I'm completely bemused by the popularity of Liz Truss with um, Conservative Party members. Um, I can't get past the cheese and the apples and the really strange robotic delivery, and I also can't get past her endless, um, the endless promotional photographs of herself popping out of tanks or coming down plane steps. So, no, I don't think so either. I mean, I, and this is obviously part of the problem. You know, if there were an obvious person... Um, I mean, it's bad to have a prime minister who hasn't been democratically elected um, anyway. But if there was an obvious person to kind of slot in, I think with this conversation would be, you know, it would kind of be a done deal at this point. But there really isn't. There really isn't. Um, I don't know. Jeremy Hunt? I don't, I don't well, know. Well, it was
2: interesting. There is this idea that um, uh, Liz Truss is hugely popular with the party members. But then there was that YouGov poll of Tory party members that came out end of last week where we, on Sunday. said they'd most like to see Rishi Sunak, uh, followed by 25% said Liz Truss. So this idea that she's the darling of the grassroots, I'm just not Mm. sure as well. She seems to be quite good at mobilising people to the con-home online voting thingy, Mm. Uh, Mm. Hugo. But that's not really the same, is it, As, uh, as having a broad base of support?
3: There's a slight sort of—I don't know—I don't, I don't think this is a sexist thing to say. There's a slight sort of Bridezilla aspect to to, to, Liz, to Liz Truss, where she sort of, you know, she 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 believes it's her. She's determined to have it. Nobody is going to ruin her special day. But um, on, that's exactly you know, right. But but I mean, but she—I mean—and the thing with Liz Truss, you know, she she was a Remainer before she began wittering about cheese and so on. And um, and I just—I uh, don't know. I think d- d- despite the sort of Thatcher stylings and all that. I would expect there'd be a lot of people, particularly in the sort of more extreme wings of the Conservative Party, who would fear she'd be a bit of a kind of Theresa May mark too.
2: It's interesting that she's she's a sort of Brian and there's a, is is Rishi like the sort of slightly dull best man.
0: <laughs> yes, he is. He's too like a cat, and you want someone, I think, a feminist <laughs> who's more like a dog. He's like a sort of slightly. He's like a slightly preening. He's like a slightly preening. Um, you know kind of designer cat not even a nice moggy he's just I don't know I can't see it
2: I'm glad be the metaphors are go-go who needs Jonathan Van Tam (laughs) who needs Jonathan Van Tam now uh, let's move on and talk about some proper things Bob the Builder uh, the uh, multi-millionaire founder of shows like Paw Patrol and Bob the Builder Keith Chapman has said that uh, they wouldn't have existed without creative arts degrees, and he's been trying to extol the virtue of uh, arts degrees over, you know, the the, the the sciences, which you know, science, technology, engineering, and maths, which there, there tends to be a lot of sort of policy focus on. Um, well, as someone who doesn't have a degree, I mean, I've you know, but then I, you know, I'm not worth quite as much as Bob the Builder. Um, but what were your degrees in?
3: Uh, mine was in philosophy, so it's kind of it's sort of an arts, but it's a sort of sciencey arts, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> And you use it, it every what, day, arts or science. Let's think about that. Uh, yeah. Philosophy <laughs> nightmare. Um, <laughs>
2: and you use it all every day. I imagine. You,
3: you know, know what? I do use it every day, actually, because I mean, the, the, there aren't many things that make that are a better training for writing opinion columns and yeah, expressing opinions true. and formulating opinions <laughs> than a structure and sort of like you know logical thought. However bad I was at logical thought, <laughs> it's still so useful
2: to learn. Uh, what about you, India? Do you think that he's uh, right that we undervalue uh, the creative arts?
0: Yes, yes, I do massively, um, partly because the creative arts are fun. And I think the way that children are shoehorned into making um, decisions that allegedly are going to inform their future careers really, really early on is awful. I think all the fun and creativity and imagination is kind of taken out. And then they're steered towards STEM subjects very young. I I think people should go to university and do what they like and what fires them up and what interests them and that they can decide what area they want to work in afterwards i think those 3 years 4 years in scotland are really really precious and i think they i think they need to be utilized properly to make people enthuse and want to find stuff out and not just sort of sit there laboriously taking notes and thinking, God, how boring, but never mind, I'll slot straight into that job or that job. You know, I think everything happens too soon um, with education, including tertiary education, and I really believe in arts degrees. I think they are, I think they, without wanting to sound too poncy about it, I think they kind of nourish you throughout the rest of your adult life. I think they're a marvellous thing to have in your pocket.
2: Good, good. Uh, let's move on and talk finally about the most serious uh, issue of the day. People who dress up their dogs, <clears throat> uh, pet owners, may be inadvertently hurting their dogs by buying them snow boots. A vet has warned. What sort of idiot buys? I must admit, I'm not. A f- I, I think uh, p- popping a hat on a dog for a photo, fine, but they don't need to be wearing coats.
0: See, I don't even think that. I think even popping on on a hat for a photo is awful. I think dogs should be dogs. I can't bear anything that makes dogs less dog-like at all. Any clothes, any accoutrements, any accessories. And I think, you know, those snow boot things, fine if you're taking your dog up Ben Nevis, but not if you're not if it's slightly rainy and you're talking taking your dog for a walk on the pavement it's crazy and the number, it's because the number of times when I'm them. out
2: and I see you know quite big dogs wearing what appear to be full on like knitted jumpers oh but that's yeah. th- that's to
3: keep them well, they wear these all over bodysuits now to keep the mud off i say they wear like they've decided to keep them on. owners put them on their dogs to keep the mud off when it's when it's muddy in the park. look i'm very much of the view that there is only one circumstance in which you should ever put clothes on a dog and that's if it's halloween and you're putting something with extra legs on it to make it look like a giant spider That's the only, <laughs> time. That's the only time it's allowed I read this article today it made me it just makes me so cross dogs and clothes I'm not quite sure why but it does it was this uh, the, the, was it short Sean, uh, Sean McCormack was, was 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 writing in dogs today and he said and he was saying that you mustn't put your dog in dog boots because they're uncomfortable and they're heavy and they often don't fit but the way he, what he said was he said one of the most common problems with dog boots is that pet parents can find it difficult to recognize when they don't fit their dog correctly it's like pet parents pet this is the whole problem you're not their parents you're their owner you don't put clothes on them they're not a kid no clothes and also, it's a spider costume
0: also <laughs> putting clothes on a dog takes away from the inherent nobility of the dog that's what mm-hmm. really gets yes,
2: me i think you're right and-
0: yeah, terrible. Unless you've got a Whippet or a very thin-skinned, we, short-haired breed. In w- our who,
2: house, we, we, we harbour a fantasy that one day we'll come home and find the dog sitting in bed wearing a bonnet and glasses. <laughs> <laughs> dogs, dogs putting on their own clothes is a completely, different, completely different situation. That's, fine, fine. Yeah, that's completely,
0: Absolutely yeah.
3: fine.
2: <laughs> well, I think we covered a lot of ground there. And we didn't even get time to talk about Gina Miller's new political party, which she's launched this morning. Um, 13 mm. people have turned up. There were baseball caps and everything. Never
3: mind. <sighs> can, I, can, can I give you my Jonathan Van Tam suggestion? Yes, please. I go? What
2: should Jonathan Van Tam do next?
3: I think he should launch a line of Bluetooth speakers that they mainly sell in airports because I always think he's already got one. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> JVT? No, JVT? no. It's always JVT. Uh, Jonathan, Jonathan vein thrombosis. I'll go. My time's up.
2: Uh, have you got anything you want to try and rescue this item with, India?
0: No, not really. I just really I mourn him in advance because I love him. I,
1: I love
2: know, his yeah. face. You love his face. Maybe get him to dress. Can we get him to dress up as a dog? Let's not dwell on that. Uh, <laughs> India night, Hugo Rifkin, Lovely to speak to you. You can read India in the Sunday Times every week. Uh, Hugo, you can read on a Tuesday and on a Saturday in the Times. And you can hit catch him uh, on Times Radio from 10 o'clock every Saturday, too. Get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, how do we die well? It's my conversation with Claire Fisher. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. How do you feel seems like a stupid question. But <laughs> given that all the conversation we had before was about dying well and yeah. making that process as, as comfortable and as positive as it can be. And yeah. I know from personal experience I went through uh, with my mother-in-law before Christmas. A hospice is a place to do that. So, but but then it's amazing. going there, you know what you're there for. And so having never really spoken to somebody about it, what how does it feel, that process of, of getting to where you wanted to be, but ultimately you don't want to be?
4: Well, I think, you know, a lot of what I've been talking about through Dying Well and a lot about that we talked about before is how important it is to have the conversations beforehand and how important it is that people know that they're dying and how important it is that you have advanced care conversations and you have the chance when you're well to discuss with your family what you want. And so I feel incredibly fortunate that we've done all of that and that we've made a plan. And that the plan that we wanted is coming together and I know I'm so so fortunate to have the opportunity to to know that I want to be in a hospice and to be able to be in one um and that's just not I think you know one in one in four people don't get that and 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 so I feel well so genuinely you know I know what's coming maybe we can talk about the difference between being in a hospice and being in a hospital but it's I would say having spent two weeks in a hospital beforehand is the perfect primer for being delighted to be in a hospital and <laughs> um, so that's that's brilliant and my family you know we, we're all on the same page we know where this is going we know how it's going to be and we're just yeah I mean I don't know that you're ever ready but this is this is the best that for us from where we are now and I'm pleased and privileged to be here and as ever just so aware that not everybody gets that opportunity which is why I'm just why I've been working in Curie and talking to you guys about why isn't this a thing that sh- should be part of the standard provision for people? Why don't we look after people properly when they die all the time?
2: And uh, just, just actually draw out that distinction. Having you, having been in it most recently, people who don't know the difference between being in hospital and being in a hospice when you know you are nearing the end of your life.
4: I want to start by saying nobody in a hospital is being mean to you. NHS staff are amazing, COVID is a nightmare, there's not enough staff, there's too many patients, it's a bit of a war zone. I don't want anyone to hear anything that I say as a criticism of the hospital, they are just stretched beyond belief. But a few things, so I was admitted to hospital, uh, I'd been basically projectile vomiting over my own bathroom for 24 hours, I wasn't in a very nice state, I got admitted to hospital. When I got into hospital I asked if I could wash my hair two weeks I wasn't able to wash my hair two weeks I was having to scrag my own hair back with vomit still in it not able to get a brush through it spraying body spray at it so it didn't smell too bad there was just nobody that had time to properly help me wash my hair you get to the hospice they say what do you want I said if you've got time could we wash my hair yeah we do it now proper hour and a half proper bath proper somebody that takes the time to clean your hair and wash it
2: something as straightforward as washing your hair really difficult to do that in a hospital absolutely what the hospitals are doing and i, I suppose the the thing that i found with the difference was at the hospital they're trying to make you better and once it's clear that that isn't what they can do there's a limit to what they then feel able to do you know
4: yeah, exactly. So, you know, I've been at the hospice forty eight hours. I've sat in the garden and read a book. You know, because they say, Is anything you'd like to do today? I was like, Yeah, I'd like could you could I go sit in the garden? Yeah, cool. Yeah. So they put you in a wheelchair, take you out into the garden, wrap you up in a blanket, give you a cup of tea, leave you to read your book. It's just you know, whereas I've been two weeks in a hospital and haven't been outside. But here I can go outside every day. Um I feel more like me. I feel in my own headspace, you know, I can have stuff from home. And crucially, my kids can come visit me at any time. So there's no visitors in hospital at the moment. So I've I've been in hospital. I haven't seen my I mean we did do a sneaky, you know, I got wheeled down to the MS and hopped <laughs> them in the MS in the hospital because you're not allowed visitors on the ward, but you know so literally I I saw my kids for five minutes in MS. Um But they can pop in any time they want here. And when they do, they're given hot chocolate and cake and people are nice to them and it doesn't feel like a hospital. So it's just it's 100 100 miles apart from, yeah, it's just brilliant. Uh,
2: How old are your children, Claire?
4: I have two 16-year-olds and an 11-year-old.
2: And how would they? I mean, I know you've you've talked about you know the importance of having these conversations. How's that yeah. conversation been? Explaining to your children that you're now in a hospice and what that means.
4: Um, again, we haven't really had to have that conversation this week because we've had this conversation over the last three years. These conversations shouldn't be one conversation. These should be. I think people who are terminally ill deserve to know they're terminally ill. Deserve to have the opportunity to slowly carefully gradually talk to people and build up to it i mean it's never going to be ideal but i would say it's as untraumatic as i think we could make it
2: and and do you know how long you'll be at the hospice for have you been given any idea
4: well prognosis is really really tricky so um i don't really know i mean it could be weeks it could be longer um at the moment we're not really sure whether I'm absorbing any nutrition at all. So although I'm just about able to eat and drink, I'm not sure that any of it's really doing anything very much. Um so yeah, I would say weeks, but maybe some quite a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's my uh, best guess at the moment. That, well that's good. I don't, I don't really know.
2: <laughs> that's good news and, and being able to you know get there and settle into the hospice is really yeah. um yeah. really good news the interesting thing okay, is that i know that lots of the people will be listening to this and thinking they wouldn't even be able to have, have this conversation without getting upset themselves never mind someone else yeah. how do you keep it all together
4: um i mean i'm i am a christian so faith is a huge part of of, yeah. of that for me so i do have a faith about what come next for me but also what comes next for the people I'm going to leave behind um but also yeah I'm a pragmatist when I first got my diagnosis three years ago I had a lot of very very sleepless nights and very all the things that you would probably expect somebody to go through and I kind of feel maybe I did all of that then and now I and then and then I felt like I had three bonus years of actually really Kind of life that I didn't quite expect to have, where I feel like I've done all the things that I wanted to do, and I feel that's been such a privilege.
2: Did you have so... a, what people call a, a bucket list, as such, of things you wanted to do, or was that just no. sort of just just <laughs> events that you wanted to get through? And and yeah, it wasn't a sort of physical list.
4: It was a very civil sovereignty list. It was mostly admin. <laughs> <laughs> it was all the. <laughs> it felt more like it was very reminiscent of when I went on maternity leave and I handed over my job to somebody else it felt a bit like that I was conscious that I was handing over being mum and parent and you know in, in, a, in a family everyone has different roles don't they so I, yeah I basically handed over, <laughs> handed over all, the, all the things that I do in a family and, and also just one of my big goals was that my little one would start secondary school and that the kids would be in a position where they knew enough about me that they would have a fair chance of guessing what kind of advice I would give them so I think the the only thing I've really changed consciously in the last three years is I've shown a lot more of my workings out loud if you know what I mean when I've made decisions or when I've said yes or no or stuff in a family i've been a lot more explicit with everybody about why i'm deciding that it's to kind of i hope equip them to almost guess you know what would i have said about that or what would i have wanted them to do or something uh,
2: you talked about how important it is that people know what is happening to them and you tweeted yeah. uh, i think last week saying that you spent two weeks on the palliative oncology ward and you said there are still yeah. too many people who don't realise they are dying, or even you know know yeah. really what's what's happening. And it, is that a fault yeah. of the the NHS, or is it a fault of us? Is it a sort of very English British thing of stiff our lip and everything will be all right at the end? And we do, if we don't talk about it, it's not happening.
4: I think it's everything. I think it's everything, which is why it's so pervasive. Uh, so there is a thing like you said, didn't you? If you're in a hospital, people think you're going to get better. So palliative chemotherapy is a thing. They use chemotherapy to relieve symptoms. But people think that if you're having chemotherapy, it's a treatment and you're going to get better. So I think even when you tick the box for palliative chemotherapy, people think if they're on a treatment, they're going to live. Or they're going to get fixed. They don't understand that. It might just be symptom control. And even when you hear people saying that, and hearing it, it was as if it just wasn't sinking in. Um, and I recommend, every time I talk, I recommend Catherine Mannix's brilliant book called With the End in Mind, which just describes what dying is like. And she says things like, you don't die because you're not eating, you stop eating because you're dying. So, so there's lots of people who were saying things like, I've deteriorated while I've been in hospital because... I didn't get the physio or the food's been so unappetizing. I haven't been able to eat it. And that's why I've lost weight. And people, I think, are trying to rationalize what's happening to them. And it's like the missing answer is you're dying. And this is what normal dying looks like. You will sleep more. You will eat less. You will lose weight. You will just slowly shut down. And that's okay. And it's not that we're neglecting you necessarily. It's just that's what dying looks like.
2: Tell me about you joked that you you you'd taken a sort of civil service, <laughs> civil servants approach to this. Explain what you did in your your life as a civil servant and then how the, the dying well project
4: came about. Yeah, so uh, I had a brilliant career. I joined the civil service last stream and I worked in all sorts of really interesting infrastructure projects and um delivery projects. And I was always really interested in how the evidence should influence what we do as policymakers. And I have been a proud associate of the What Works Centre for Wellbeing, specifically looking at how evidence in wellbeing is a brilliant way of delivering holistic policy in a really meaningful way. And we've done some really interesting, excellent work over the years. And we talk about life events. So we have lots of really good evidence about how Retirement or loneliness or employment or divorce or different life events affect people's well-being and how government interventions can be targeted to to do some really great stuff around that and how we can make the best use of our resources. So when I got sick, I asked those questions and I specifically asked, okay, so dying is a life event, right? So what does the evidence say about that? What does the evidence say about how we die well? And I was really surprised, and the centre was really surprised to realise actually there's a big gap. And the Nancy Hay and her team at What Works Centre for Wellbeing have just stepped up and have done so much kind of voluntary work around this, really. And we've spent the last year just bringing together practitioners and policymakers and academics, and noticing that we don't think about dying as part of the life course. And noticing, we've we've done some work with Marie Curie and Hospice UK, and even palliative care is not a statutory service. It's you know so so local uh, health teams have to provide dentistry and midwifery, but there's no requirement to provide palliative or end of life services, and there's no real evidence about what works or or how to do it well or what benefits people in a holistic way, which I think also. Um, continues into this problem that we end up just treating, 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 because uh, it's all about life expectancy and extending life for years. Um, whereas actually, I think we need a much better focus on quality of life and how do we care for people. And yeah, I don't want more chemo, I'd like to like somebody to wash my hair, please. Um, so we we've spent, we've spent the last year uh, exploring that, and I've just been amazed at the response from a little Twitter account to keep myself sane. We we seem to have come quite a long way, and I'm quite excited to see where they go next.
2: So, what would you like to see change? You, you and you know, I know you've had interactions with ministers and that sort of thing. I <laughs> yeah. um, know you know from your time it, 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 the, as a civil servant how slowly sometimes these cogs can turn. What would you yeah. what would what would you like to, to see happen?
4: Well, there's a huge opportunity with the health and social care bill that's going through at the moment. And Baroness Finlay is spearheading an amazing campaign with the team at Marie Curie uh, to make palliative care a, a service that has to be provided. Why you know, why do we provide midwifery but not end of life services? It's completely crackers. Um, so much of what's provided in hospices is provided by charities. They do amazing work. But what that means is there's there's inequality of access. You know, not everybody can access it. It's hugely unfair. I am a white, educated, middle-class, middle-aged cancer patient. I'm pretty much guaranteed brilliant end-of-life care. Um, And I think everybody should be guaranteed brilliant end-of-life care. But also evidence. We, We get to better policy by better evidence, which is why we need to be able to talk about it more, research it more, understand it more. Um, and then we'll be able to target the resources in a more meaningful
2: way as well. Someone in your position, and having spent, had like you said, have the time to sort of get your affairs in order, get your ducks in a row, whatever you want to call it, how do you want to be remembered? I mean, it's the old thing that nobody's ever going to look back and say, I wish I'd spent more time at work. <laughs> but what turns out as is, is the important stuff for you right now, um you know, having finally got to the hospice that you wanted to be at. When you look back on your life, what, what's the what's the important stuff to you?
4: I don't know really. I've never been a I've always been a person of fairly modest ambitions. And um that the thing I always wanted was to have a room to myself that was full of books, like a little library or a study. So I've achieved that and I was very happy with that um (laughs) i love my family you know just i think we did a good job of having some nice children i think they're going to be great grown-ups um i've always been fairly modest in just trying to find the happiness every day really and and i have mostly and that's kind of what i'm still doing
2: you really are i've been following your your tweets (laughs) whether it's flowers or birds and stuff and you think well, actually that's really you know that's the stuff that matters, not the pile of emails <laughs> building up in your inbox. Or Although whatever. I do
4: also have to say, I ha- it has been incredibly important for me to keep working. I'm not sure that people say they wouldn't spend more time at work. Uh, well-being evidence, having purposeful, meaningful work is hugely beneficial for well-being. So literally, you know, I, I couldn't do a proper job anymore. I have basically made up the Dying Well Project because I wanted something useful and purposeful to do. And that's been really important. Um, so yeah balance balance is important
2: i think oh it's, yeah I, I, I could totally see that that rather than sort of sort of giving up work and just sitting and waiting to I, be ill having the, something the, to to work on
4: yeah birds are all well and good but if i was literally just watching birds all day i think i would have gone completely bonkers by now
2: or even um <laughs> listening to times radio because I, this is how we first got in touch yeah. because you you messaged me one day and said you were listening to times radio while sitting having your chemo when you told me to make it a good show which felt like a lot of pressure
4: well exactly you know i'm a a civil servant so you know i what i do is in the hospice i start the day i'm literally my next thing to do is organize getting newspapers delivered because now i've got time to read newspapers you know that's i want to stay interested in the things i'm interested in so yeah you will get you'll get me listening along much more regularly now, Matt, because I am much more available. <laughs> so keep them good.
2: <laughs> well, well, that's a lot of pressure. It's. A, I will do my best uh, to live up to that, uh, Claire. um I don't even. It's so. I don't know what the right thing to say is, but we just sort of wish you well and your family all this, all the love and support that they can, that they need over how, however long it is. And I'm sure lots of people will really appreciate you sharing your story.
4: Thank you so much. It's been. It's been a, a great little meeting, and uh, thank you so much for the extra support that you've you've given to the to the work that we're doing and for helping that it's great just to have the opportunity to show people that these conversations don't have to be awful it's dying is just as normal part of living as being born and all the things in between and we need to get better at doing yeah it.
2: you're not nobody will ever regret having that conversation but the the not having sure. had it will will cause problems later on um claire fisher good luck and uh thank you for sparing your time with times radio
4: all so, right, thank you so much.
2: Ray. Well, let's actually turn our attention then to the the, the policy issue that Claire uh, was talking about and why palliative care is a bit of a postcode lottery as to where you live and your ability to uh, access uh, those uh, services. Sam Royston is Director of Policy and Research at Marie Curie UK and joins me now. Hi, Sam. Good morning. Um, the uh, health and social care bill then is in the House of Lords today um, and the, the, the case for palliative care is being made, isn't it?
5: That's absolutely right. Uh, Baroness uh, Laura Finley has got down an amendment which would uh, add in uh, to the bill the requirement for every part of England to uh, be delivering palliative care services, um, and it's such an important um, change that could be that could be made because um, at the moment there's no such requirement. It's been the case for decades, and the consequences of it are really severe in terms of making sure that people have access to those services which support people uh, effectively at the end of life.
2: And um, in the conversation um, I had with Claire, we were were talking about this, I think, after we'd stopped recording as well, and she mentioned, you know, you have to have, uh, you know, there's a statute requirement for dentistry and ophthalmology and all these other things, uh, which is right and proper and people should be able to get a dentist. But it seems extraordinary that given that, you know, the blunt truth is we are all going to die at some point, it's not a requirement that there was proper palliative care in place for everyone. Absolutely, it's I. It's incredible, and
5: and um, what a fantastic, amazing interview with Claire, by the way. That really was, really was incredible. Um, but th- th- there are so many things. There's a clause in the bill. There's a part of the bill that sets out. That um, these new boards that will be responsible for delivering healthcare services across across the country will have to deliver dentistry, they'll have to deliver maternity services, quite rightly, they'll have to deliver ophthalmology, but they won't have to deliver specifically support for dying people, and that's just it. Just it's incredible that that's the case, but it's incredible that actually this isn't this isn't. Something new. This hasn't been the case for decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And so, and what, what would be the impact? Were this to be, um I know some peers are trying to get it uh, into the bill. Were it included, is there a financial implication of it? Is it a resources thing that the government won't do? I mean, I'm not, that's not an excuse because we find money for all sorts of things. Is that part part of the issue?
5: Well, at the moment, um we think, Marie Curie, think that around ninety percent of people, nine out of ten people who uh, die, uh, would have benefited from specialist palliative care services, from some specific support around uh, their support needs as they're dying, but only about half actually get that support. So there's already a huge gap in terms of the provision um, of support that's available. And we know that that's likely to grow in future just simply because we've got an aging population with more people who are dying each year. We think that this amendment is a crucial step towards making sure that health commissioning bodies, the bodies that are responsible for deciding what health services get delivered in every part of the country, take some responsibility for delivering specialist palliative care services that can make sure that people get that targeted wellbeing support that uh, they need towards the end of their life.
2: Sam, it's really good to speak to you. Um, we'll keep our uh, we'll keep across what's happening in the House of Lords with the Health and Social Care That's Sam Royston, Director of Policy and Research at Mary Curie UK. That's so all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, ten till one on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast, and if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. Small details are big surfaces.